0: Here's what's coming up on today's show.
1: We've had a very out of the ordinary couple of years with COVID. All the stimulus money poured into the economy, quickly increasing interest rates. These are things that aren't very normal. And so, you know, those can throw a wrench into even the best run operation.
2: Welcome to the Retirement Cafe with certified financial planners, Dan Reese and Brent Oliver. At our cafe, we believe your retirement plan should be life-giving. And custom made, just like a hot cup of coffee. Here in Mid Michigan, with an office in Jackson, the Retirement Cafe is open for business. Hello, and welcome into the Retirement Cafe. Glad to have you on the show. I am Ben George, along with Dan Reese and Brent Oliver over at Avery Wealth Guys. How are you doing today? Good, Great. real yeah. good. Good to catch up with you. You know, Warren Buffett once said that banking is a very good business if you don't do anything dumb. Well, we've all seen the headlines here recently. So it makes you wonder about the leadership of some of the banks that have failed this year. So today we're going to talk about how banks make money, what can lead to bank failures, and what protection is there for the average American with money they have in the bank or invested in security. So give us the background on this, guys, because I know this has been all the talk here in recent weeks.
1: Yeah, I think the big thing is, like, we we know how scary this can be for everybody. You know, you think of, like, because, you know, it's one thing if you're invested, like, say you go make a flyer on some individual stock, if that company goes out of business, you're kind of like, yeah, I knew yeah. that could happen, yeah. right? But you don't expect
3: that with a bank, do you? No, you think when you put the money in there, and we're going to talk about all this, but it's just should be a given that it's very, very safe and that you don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to get your money, right? Yeah. And I yeah. think a lot of people have fears around that very topic, and that's what creates a lot of the anxiety. Yeah, and we just want people
1: to have a little better understanding because to believe it or not, there, there really isn't a ton of risk normally. Now take out 2008 where there's some really unique things going on, but we'll kind of explain today what happened with like uh, Silicon Valley Bank and those types of things. But generally speaking, if you understand how they operate, how they make money, like Warren Buffett said, it's a really good business. Right. I mean, you can screw it up, which is proven by every year there's some bank failures, right? Yeah,
3: for sure. You know, we also want our listeners just to understand how the actions that they take oh. can really impact this as well, too. So, and we'll get into a little bit more detail, but just what you do with your bank and and the the way that you act can, can determine a lot of times whether or not they're successful or not. Yeah, it can have an unbelievable impact, which we'll talk about.
2: All right, guys, I'm just kind of curious because these two banks obviously are going to generate big headlines and they have, but... Is it pretty common for banks to fail? I mean, how does it, how often does this happen on a, on a given year?
1: Yeah, it's pretty interesting. There's good statistics out there from the FDIC talking about bank failures and believe it or not, it generally speaking most years there's only a handful, right, Brent?
3: Yeah, but I I think that's even more than what people would expect. And if right. you look at the the news headlines right now, it's like you would think that this has never happened before, except for like in 2008. And that's not the case. So it does, they're not super common, but they do happen. Yeah. And we have some years here. So in, in, uh, 2021 and 2022, the most recent years, there weren't any. And that there's a lot of different reasons behind that, but that's also part of the reason why I think people are hypersensitive to it right, right now. And before that, the two years before that, 2019 and 2020, there were four in each of those calendar years. So yeah. eight total in that two year period.
1: Yep. And I think that's, you know, usually up to like 10, 11 a year is not that abnormal right. for bank failures. Um, it, the thing, it's, it really skews it is like from 2008 through 2012. If you total up those years, there were 465 <laughs> bank failures. And a lot of that had to do with the, you know, how they they sold bad loans and then they packaged them and they leveraged them. And so there was all this extra risk out there. Yeah. And it came to fruition. And it was really scary. Right. And of course, they, you know, they put regulation in place to change a lot of the rules so those things can't happen now. But um, yeah, I mean, in most years, I think to answer your question, I mean, I look through it through a whole collection of years. You see a lot of fours, fives, eights. There's one. 2002 had eleven. You know, and and who knows exactly the reason for that without doing some digging. But 2005 and 2006 had zero, both those years.
3: And so this really isn't unlike a lot of other years, but people are just hypersensitive to it right now, probably because it hasn't happened in a couple of years. Yeah. And everybody wants to draw that parallel to 2008. And so that that's where a lot of the fear and anxiety is coming from. Yeah. The old PTSD, right? Yeah. And which, I mean, yeah. it's, it's
1: a real thing. That was a terrible time for sure.
2: Yeah. I just think like, I, I know that banks are always merging, but I'd never really hear the, about, you know, banks failing. So it is you no know, news to me. I'm sure most of the average person just doesn't hear about these things outside of obviously 2008 and 2009 and the fallout from that. So, uh, well, then with this conversation, let's, let's just kind of back it up and start from the beginning and just, break down like how banks actually make money then as we kind of get into this conversation.
1: Yeah. And we're going to stick with kind of the basics of this, which really applies to most banks because there are specialty banks that do different things. Right. But typically there's, there's kind of four major ways, right? Brent. They're yeah. Make money. So
3: you'd have, you have obviously banks issue loans and so mm-hmm. they will generate interest when you pay your loan back to them, you're paying them interest. Right. So that's one of the ways we have then there's also bank fees, which all of us want to avoid, but that's that's a way that they can generate some revenue. They use investments of the of the deposits, mm-hmm. so they'll make investments, and then of course credit cards, which in a lot of ways is is similar to loans, but it's that's a category in a, in a, of itself. Yeah, and I mean the thing is, is like I think what a lot of people kind of got to think about this a little bit.
1: So banks don't have their own money, right? <laughs> So really, the whole thing is, is they're using customer deposits to try to make money to not only make money for the bank, but also generally pay the depositors some interest, which no, no laughter in the background, because we know interest hasn't been right. <laughs> hasn't been much to right. pay in the last few years. But the point is, that's what they're trying to do in um, in the thing that we always try to stress with this is we talk through these different ways that they make money. Keep in mind, like if we all deposit you know, money into the bank, not all those dollars are readily available. And that's right. one of the things that can cause problems, right? So if money's loaned out,
3: they're making those payments. So not every dollar we put in the bank is available right. that day. Right, because they're using it for those loans, right? Or or the investments that they have and, and so on. So yeah, you're, you're exactly right. They're, that money, it's not like it's just sitting there waiting for you to come get it. Right, right. And so really, it's a service to everybody. Like I kind of talked through... It really the banks are there
1: for the good of the people because not only does it give you a generally safe place to put money, but also as a place you can go get a loan if you need some money. And it kind of works together. But we'll talk a little later about how we can screw that up. Right? Exactly. So.
2: Well, out of, uh, out of those four ways then that, that the banks make money, are some of them lower risk?
1: Oh, I think so for sure. I mean, you look at bank fees, yeah. like and, and they do add up. Like I read an article about how much revenue banks can create you know, you think about, most people just think of account fees, right? Yes. But there's all kinds of different, like if you go to the ATM, most of yeah. them charge yep. a fee, right? Yeah,
3: two or three bucks or whatever it is. And so you wouldn't think that that would be a lot, but with all of their uh, of the different customers that they have, I mean, those can really, really build up. But there's, there is risk in that, too, because obviously, if your bank charges a bunch of fees, what what's going to happen? People are going to take their money and go somewhere else. So there yeah. has to be a balance there. Yeah. Um, but that's probably the lowest risk category. Credit cards can have some moderate risk mm-hmm. too. I mean, we know that the interest rates can be very high, which is very profitable a lot of times. But um, in times of recessions and things like that there's higher default rates and things like that so there there can be risk there as well
1: yeah i mean i think that's a really good thing to think about is that generally credit cards must do fairly well because everybody's issuing them but you know the other thing that i know they love and that's where all these rewards programs come from is every time you
3: charge what is it i mean you used to have a business about three percent yeah yeah i mean the the processing fees is what really really gets a lot of Revenue there for mm-hmm. for for processing companies and credit card companies. Yeah, and that's really no risk to them, right? Like it's every yeah, time you use it, just comes right it. out of the retailer. You know, the retailer is the one that's paying those fees. Yeah, so in essence, the consumer pays those and not even realizing, yeah. even though they don't see it. Right, right and up that, front. that's why, this is a little off topic, but that's why a lot of times at say gas stations and mm-hmm. things like that, where you'll see if you pay with cash, you get it at this price, and you pay on credit card, you get it for this price, well, they don't wanna pay your, pro- if they don't have to pay the processing fee, they can give it to you at cheaper rates. So
1: that's yeah. kinda, that's yeah. what that, so those that's are what a couple, talking about. Yep,
3: so those are a couple
1: of, you know, some of the lower risk ways that banks make money
2: okay that's good to know all right well, what type of issues then can come up with loans
1: yeah loans are a big generally a good a good way for banks to make money um one of the things that we like talk about just so you kind of understand is that there are secured loans and unsecured loans so you know i think most people have been at a bank and said hey we have loan consolidation programs right typically isn't that when they have like a lot of debt and they want to consolidate into a single loan and make it easier to pay that back, right.
3: but those aren't secured so what's right. that mean well there's no there's no asset backing it up, so like a a mortgage right is backed up by the property or yeah. a co- a automobile the same thing there you have that that you can that you can take possession of if you 're the bank if somebody defaults on that
1: yeah, so like that 's the thing is, and those generally are safer, and they generally have a little lower interest because right. of that right unsecured is can be really risky. But one of the things we want to talk about because it came up, you know, recently is how diversified are your loans? So just like anything in life, don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you're making loans to the same group of people, meaning they share a lot of the same characteristics, maybe they all work in the same industry or they're, they're, you know, like we live in Jackson where consumers is a big employer. If you just loan to consumers,
3: right, Right. people that work there, there could be risk in that, right? Yeah, because if something happened with. Consumers and and the, their ability to pay people, and they had to lay people off. That would create probably higher default rates for some of the local banks, and that's kind of what happened with the S- Saginaw or Saginaw Valley. Yeah, no, I was right. say Sag- close. <laughs> yeah. Silicon Silicon Valley. <laughs> so, I must have uh, must have sports on my mind or something like that. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank. A lot of obviously the their customers were in the tech companies yeah and what do we know about the last year there's a slowdown in that in that sector which caused some issues yeah yeah for sure and then one thing that can happen and this is really this is a little bit more complicated
1: but with loans so if you know the last several years interest rates have been really low well one of the things that can happen remember to make a loan you have to have deposits right and so if you loan out money at 2% as an example and now depositors are requiring more interest on their money, meaning they have alternatives, they'll pull their deposit and go somewhere else. That can cause a problem, right? Because they go to get their money out
3: and the money's actually still loaned out and it's not there. Right, so yeah, in your example, like say it's the, the competitive rate is, 3% on savings and they loaned it out at 2%, you can kind of see the problem there too. Yeah. And that can add up and
1: you got to be careful. And that's why bank management is so important where you you kind of lay out out of all our deposits, how do we allocate them? And loans is one bucket, right? But if you put too much in loans, that can cause problems. And that's a good example. Absolutely.
2: That is a good example. Um, And I know from what I've been reading and just kind of paying attention to the news, you know, the, the banks really... Lean on investing money from depositors is another major way that they are able to produce revenue as well. So I'm sure there are plenty of risks that arise in this area.
1: Yeah. And I think the first thing to understand is that banks are somewhat limited in what they can invest in. There's, there's some regulations around that. But generally, they have quite a few options, right? They can invest in bonds and fixed income things, some stocks. Um, all around the understanding is they have to have a certain percentage in kind of what are low-risk investments to protect depositors. So that's one of the big caveats to what they can pick.
3: Yeah, and so they need to, again, you were talking about being diversified. They need to make sure that they're diversified in all of those different groups because too much exposure, and they're limited. Like you said, they are limited in what they can do. Yeah. But too much exposure in one area can really cause a big problem for them when it comes to cash flow.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think what you know you think about cash flow. So this this is where it relates somewhat like if you're talking about your own household. So when you think of your investment strategy, right? So if you know, if you're a you're a family and you say, "Oh, I know I need to keep so much in like cash, right, for my emergency right. fund." And then I need so much in what we would consider kind of fixed income, like safer investments, so not everything's risky, and then we can leave some of that in the markets, right? So like try to get some growth on that money. Right. And when we look at our own situation, we make those decisions based on what our needs are. So if you're younger and you're like, hey, I know I don't really need any safe money in my investments right now because I have my emergency fund, so that can be longer term, that'd be one example. Right. But what if you're like coming up on retirement?
3: You might have to keep more. Yeah, so you might need to keep more in reserves off to the side that you're going to use to live on on a regular basis. And so your strategy for doing that would be much different. So you really need to be able to anticipate when you have a bank what the need is going to be. Which can be, I mean, that's a that is a challenging task, yeah, to do.
1: Right, right. So what you're saying is like I, the whole idea is the same as a family is like a bank. It's easier many times for a family because you kind of know what you know when how long you want to work and all these things you can plan it out. Banks are dependent on what their depositors do, right, right, or what their customers do, and so they have to look at their overall deposits, withdrawals, kind of you know month to month. What are our average cash flows coming in and out? And they have to allocate that money to try to get the best return they can, but also to protect their depositors right. for when they might need that money, right? And so what that means is that they'll have some in stocks, they'll have some in longer-term bonds, some in shorter-term bonds, and some like in very liquid, safe stuff, right? right? And so think of
3: we, we think of it like a bond ladder almost, right? Right. Right. So with a bond ladder what you're what you're doing is you're just staggering the the maturities mm-hmm. right so maybe if you're anticipating in year one you're going to need x amount for deposits and in year two so you would have those maturities staggered out in one year and two year and three year maturities so that you're always renewing them to to a new maybe longer term one but the the one that was two is going to be now going to be maturing in one year, yeah. a year down the road, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. And the thing is to understand about bonds is that generally speaking, the way a bond works, you lend money to a, like in many times with banks, it's the government, they will pay them an interest on that money. And then at the end of the terms, like what Brent was saying is if it's two years or three years or five, the end of that term, you get your money back. Pretty straightforward. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, you're getting your money back. You just have to hold on till the end of the term. But what happens during rising interest rate environments like we've been in the last year, it doesn't, it doesn't always play nice because the way I want you to think of this is much like if you owned a five-year CD, let's take that example. Let's say you bought that CD in 2021 when rates were low and you were getting 2% on it. And now they're going for four. Well, if you said to your friend, hey, you wanna buy
3: my 2% CD, they're probably not gonna give you what you paid for it. No, right? they would want a discount so that they could get the same rate that's currently available the 4%. So you'd have to discount the the value of your bond enough to do that. Yeah. So but if you held it if you, you know, if in that example if you held it till maturity,
1: you would get your money back. Right. But if you sold it in the interim, someone's not going to pay you the full amount because they can get a new one for more interest. Right. And so in banks when they own like the all these
3: buckets of bonds, that's called an unrealized loss. Right. So in that example, like what you're saying is if a depositor came and wanted their money back, if they have to liquidate some bonds to do that, they would have to do that at a loss, yes, right and and that obviously creates a lot of problems for the bank right and that's exactly what you're starting to see we'll get into this further, but so
1: you think about we're talked about what you can do as a you know a bank depositor, if you will a customer, the best thing you can do is is not start pulling money out as soon as you get freaked because what happens is number one, it's insured. And we'll talk about that. But the other thing is, is when everybody starts making a bank run, then the banks are forced to sell more and more of these things that unreal unrealized loss becomes a realized loss. And so that's what puts a bank under, right? Yeah. And so it's really important to get that fact around their their investments.
2: All right. Well, it sounds like, you know, many of these issues came to fruition with the re- recent bank failures can you just touch on that a little bit for us?
1: Yeah. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank kind of had a perfect storm, right? Yeah. So they had a lot of the things we talked about happen at the same time, which uh, caused some major issues. Do you know, what was the first thing Well,
3: that I mean, COVID created a lot of this because there was a surplus of cash, which put an influx of money into the banking system and in into their bank in particular not in particular but it, it also yeah and
1: you think about so all those deposits came in and one of the challenges during that period interest rates were basically zero so in order to get any interest they had to buy a little bit longer term bond which we just talked about right. can be really ugly when interest rates start rising
3: so that was that was the first thing that occurred to them yeah and at at that time both Individual and their business clients were doing really, really well. Like, I mean, think about what happened in the tech sector during COVID. It skyrocketed, right? Everybody's at home and dependent on their technology, and so there, there, there was a the the market was very good to the to that sector. Yeah, so more deposits, yeah, right? Exactly. So some yes. b- money's
1: rolling in there. And then the issue with them is they just weren't very dur- diversified with their clients. Most of them were in tech. So that creates an issue, like we talked about earlier, when tech starts not doing as well. Now you got problem with bank flows, right? So that becomes an issue. Right. And in along that, we just mentioned they bought a lot of bonds with longer maturities. And so when the te- tech sector slowed down, the deposit started going withdrawals instead of deposits. They had to start selling some of
3: these bonds they bought, and they were selling them at a loss. Right. And then then what and happened? Th- well, and then you have to assume. I mean, we don't. I don't think we really know this piece, but that there were probably more defaults because the tech sector was down. So some of those companies weren't doing as well, especially a lot of the startups, which mm-hmm. they are very well known for funding a lot of the startups. Yeah. Um, and so when you have now you're, now there's a default on some of the loans as well. So they're not generating that revenue either. Yeah. So it's like the snowball effect <laughs> selling yes. it on real or realizing losses,
1: maybe not getting paid on the loans they were. And then, you're a tweet away from yes. meltdown because you know in the world we live in now somebody that has any kind of following on twitter puts a
3: tweet about you should get your money out of this bank because it's failing and people panic right and then they then that magnifies it even more because now they have to sell and realize more losses on on some of these longer term loans or bonds that they have and we've got a major problem yep
2: yeah no, we saw that it- here recently, just the first like social media bank run, I guess is kind of how it was described. Yeah, for sure. Pretty wild to watch, but it happens like instantaneously almost. So it's a different world we live in. Well, the big question for most people then, um, we're not putting our money in Silicon Valley Bank. We're not putting our money in some of these bigger banks. We're, you know, we're just using our local banks and smaller banks for our savings and checking of accounts. So what safety measures are in place then for most of us that are utilizing banks that way?
1: Yeah, I think the thing to understand is for almost the majority of us, we have very little risk in a bank, right?
3: Right, because, well, bank deposits are insured by FDIC insurance. It's a, it's a program that insures your deposits mm-hmm. at a bank. And so for an individual, you have up to uh, $250,000 of yep. insurance, and, and for, for a couple, it's $500,000. Um, and that's, that's by account type.
1: Yeah, so if you had an IRA there, you had a savings account; those are different account types. This should not be an issue. And you know, one of the things we always talk about: if you're unsure, talk to your bank and say, "Hey, if I'm bumping up on that, am I? Do I have any money that's uninsured from an FDIC basis? Right? Because, and then one of the things you can easily do is if you just keep some money in a in a different bank. Yeah,
3: especially if you're over those those limits. Yeah, right. I mean, I think this is a a good time. To say, look, if you are over those limits, you probably should be looking at some alternatives. And there's plenty of them. And one of them is just to use a couple of different banks. Yeah. I mean, you could have like some money in a checking
1: account, another bank or whatever. But but
3: that might also help you if your bank was teetering instead of running on the bank and taking the money out that's insured, you know, which is going to push them farther over the edge. Yeah. Allow that bank to, you know, to do business yeah get right, their bearings and, and, right and continue but maybe have some other money for short-term reserves that you might need at a, at a different bank
1: yeah i mean overall ftic is a very efficient program like you're not waiting you know long periods of time to get money they they dealt with silicon valley like within a few days yeah
3: so that a lot of that started going down on a thursday afternoon by friday regulators were involved in things like that by monday the deposits were fully available. Yeah. So it's not like you're gonna to have to wait months either. I mean, they right. they get in there, they get this resolved and, and it's it's been very efficient.
2: Well, then I know there are also a lot of questions about those investment custodians like Schwab and Fidelity and the safety there. How are those investments protected then?
1: Yeah, and it's really similar. They have something called SIPC, but in essence, it's gonna cover an account up to 500,000. But one thing to understand about that your investments are segregated, so right. invested dollars are pretty darn safe. I mean, because the fact of the matter is, they're not commingled with Schwab's assets or Fidelity's
3: assets; they are kept separate. So, right. your so if you own yeah. a stock, uh, an individual stock that you own that stock, there they're yeah. holding that your your right to that stock. One thing to be really clear about, though, with with uh, SIPC is that it's. That doesn't count for downturns in the market, right? right? We right. want to be clear on that part of it. We're, um, so that's not what we're referring to.
1: Yeah, and if you look, go out, like FINRA.org's got some really good articles about things like this. And, you know, that's a government agency, in essence, a self-regulatory agency. And so um, basically what it says, virtually all, this is right verbatim from their site. It says, in virtually all cases of a brokerage firm closing... Customer assets are safe and typically transferred in orderly fashion to another registered brokerage firm. So anytime anything like that's happened, people have not been at a loss. They've gotten their money, it's just maybe been moved to another firm. Um, but the big thing is is that for the most part, it's very safe. They have net capital requirements at these places. You know, you really don't have right. a ton of worry in those areas.
2: Well that's good to know and you know this entire episode makes me feel a little bit better about the security of my bank deposits and and money at my broker's firm and hopefully it does for other people as well. Um, as we close it out as always can we take a minute to summarize today's information.
1: Yeah absolutely so the big thing is banks don't have their own money right so they're charged with kind of managing those assets for the good of their depositors and shareholders so you know the fact of the matter is is that the best thing we can do is understand FDIC insurance is there Don't make a bank run. When they run into some challenges, that allows them to get the best optimal solution versus having to shut its doors, which we don't want. No one wants to see the bank shut their doors, right? And one of the things you always have to remember, we've had a very out of the ordinary couple of years with COVID. All the stimulus money poured into the economy, quickly increasing interest rates. These are things that aren't very normal. And so, you know, those can throw a wrench into even the best run operation, And so like Silicon Valley, I don't know if they were really run that poorly. You know, some people throw that out there, but they had a bunch of things happen all at once. And so that's something that you can't always foresee. Like many things with money, diversification is key for for everything, including banks and making sure they've got a diverse group of clients, diverse group of loans, things like that to keep them as safe as possible. And really understand that for most of us, insurance protections in place are more than enough to safeguard us. You know, that's what really matters. The average Joe... They're not going to have too much of an issue. You know, they're going to be able to use their bank for for their savings, for their checking, and be pretty darn safe. And like we talk about, even though it seems like if you hear bad news that running into the bank and getting your money is a good idea, it really isn't. It really causes more problems than good. We saw it even recently with some of the smaller regional banks, like people taking money out of those and putting them in the big, big banks that is not helping the situation you know rely on the fdic insurance it's <laughs> hard to say because it's going to do its job and the best advice around all this stuff like anything with finance get educated by listening to things like this don't listen to the financial press and because remember their job is to stir people up they get paid for clicks and for how many people are watching and so they're going to sensationalize everything and try to get your blood pressure up and get you excited and, and and unfortunately, oftentimes it gets you to do the worst thing possible, you know, not just with this, but even with investments. So use the CFPs like Brent and I that are out there when you have questions around this stuff. Reach out to people like us. We're happy to talk to you about it and get you some what we consider balanced information instead of something with a tilt.
2: Outstanding stuff. I know this has been something that's in the news and many people have been concerned about it because they're just worried about the fallout and what it might mean for them. But hopefully this episode will help ease some concerns there and just give you a better understanding of how banks work. So appreciate it, Dan and Brent. We we always uh, enjoy your insight. Thanks. Thanks. Well, thank you for listening to the Retirement Cafe for Dan Reese and Brent Oliver, Certified Financial Planners over at Avery Wealth, which you can find online at averywealth.com. I am Ben George. Have a good week.
0: Avery Wealth, Inc. is a registered investment advisor registered with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. Registration as an investment advisor does not imply a certain level of skill or training, and the content of this communication has not been approved or verified by the SEC or by any state securities authority. The information contained in this podcast is intended to provide general information about Avery Wealth and its services. It is not intended to offer investment advice. Investment advice will only be given after a client engages our services by executing the appropriate investment services agreement. Information regarding investment products and services are provided solely to read about our investment philosophy and our strategy. You should not rely on any information provided on our website in making investment decisions. Market data, articles, and other content in this podcast are based on generally available information and are believed to be reliable. Avery Wealth does not guarantee the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. Avery Wealth will provide all prospective clients with a copy of our current form ADV Part 2A Disclosure Brochure prior to commencing an advisory relationship. However, at any time, you can view our current form ADV Part 2A at advisorinfo.sec.gov. In addition, you can contact us to request a hard copy.